Now, I am a fan of action movies, right? those edge-of-your-seat, you know, heart-pounding thrillers. You go to the theater and watch that story uh, unfold as the hero or heroine encounters uh, dangers and trials and all kinds of problems countless times in the course of two hours. It's the kind of movie where you leave inspired but exhausted, you know, you know what I'm talking about. Well, I don't know if you realize it or not, but there is actually a book in the Bible that fits that movie genre. It's called the book of Acts. It is a book that recounts the harrowing experiences and adventures that take place in the early church as God's kingdom launches out and begins to spread around the world. It's a story of how God blesses and protects this fledgling movement against all odds until literally it does spread from one small person in one small place around the world. Let's watch a brief video that summarizes the action that is found in this book. In my former video, Theophilus, I explained the life of Christ in three minutes. Now I'm going to tell you the rest of the story. After being crucified, Jesus comes back to life and hangs out with the apostles. He tells them they will receive the Holy Spirit and be his witnesses. Jesus takes off. The disciples are gathered together on Pentecost when the Holy Spirit arrives. Tongues of fire hover over them, hence the logo. The disciples speak in tongues. Peter preaches the first sermon. 3,000 people get saved. God, one, Satan, zero. The end of Acts chapter 2 is written, providing mission statements for churches in the 21st century. Peter heals a lame man and preaches another sermon. Another 2,000 people get saved. Peter and John are thrown in jail. They're released. Peter and John celebrate with the other believers and pray for continued boldness. God rocks the house, literally. Ananias and Sapphira lie about their offering to the church and are struck dead. Contributions skyrocket. The apostles preach again. They are thrown in jail again. An angel releases them. They preach some more. The apostles nominate seven deacons to look after widows and orphans, including Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. Stephen is stoned. Present at the stoning is a young man named Saul. We'll come back to that later. Persecution breaks out. Believers scatter. Things look bad for the church. Or do they? Wherever the believers go, they preach the word, thus fulfilling the Great Commission. God to Satan still zero. Philip meets a eunuch. The eunuch is baptized. Meanwhile, Saul is on his way to persecute believers in Damascus when Jesus appears. Saul is blinded. Saul is healed. Saul repents and begins preaching to the same people he intended to persecute. God, three, Satan, well, you get the idea. Peter has a vision of unclean animals. Peter has an encounter with unclean Gentiles. He gets it. God has extended salvation to the Gentiles. Major game changer. Herod is eaten by worms. Barnabas and Paul start working together, traveling and preaching the word. By the way, I'm going to call Saul Paul now. I don't have time to explain why. Still with me? In Lystra, crowds attempt to worship Paul and Barnabas as gods. They refuse to be worshipped and are stoned. The Lystrians are a tough crowd. Paul and Barnabas survive. Paul and Barnabas part ways. Paul and Silas team up. Timothy joins Paul and Silas. Paul circumcises Timothy. Paul receives a vision of a man from Macedonia asking for help. The party leaves for Macedonia. Spoiler alert, they are thrown in prison yet again. They sing. An earthquake loosens their shackles, but they stick around to lead the jailer to Christ. Yada, 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 more preaching. In Troas, Paul preaches for so long that a man falls asleep and plummets out a window to his death. The man is resurrected. Paul preaches some more. The man wishes he was dead. Paul returns to Jerusalem, where he is promptly arrested again. He is visited by the Lord, who assures him that Paul will testify about him in Rome. Paul feels better. 
Paul is transferred to Caesarea, where his case is caught up in red tape for two years. Finally, Paul appeals to Caesar and is put on a fast ship to Rome. The shipwrecks. Paul is bitten by a snake. At last, Paul makes it to Rome. He is placed under house arrest and continues to preach the gospel while awaiting trial. And that is all we know of Paul's story. Somewhere in there, he finds the time to write a few letters. Today, they comprise much of the New Testament. The New Testament is also where you'll find the book of Acts. The end. <clears throat> well, well, that's like, that's a bit like drinking from a fire hose, right? Right? Thankfully, we will be slowing down the pace as we take up this book of Acts throughout the summer months. We're going to be studying the first half of the book, a chapter a week, as we go through the book. We're going to do that in a series entitled, The Book of Acts, Life After Jesus, because that's what we find in the book of Acts. It really is a historical record of what happens to the Christian faith after Jesus leaves this earth and goes up to heaven. Now, there's a lot going on in the book of Acts, and that's why, as I said, it's, it's an exciting story filled with adventures, edge-of-your-seat thrillers. As the early church experiences explosive growth and literally shakes the world. And so we begin this series with a message entitled, Going Up, Going Out. It's a message that will make more sense as we make our way through the first chapter. So I invite you to take out your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 1. It's found on page 830 in the church Bibles there, 830. We're going to be reading the first 11 verses, Acts chapter 1, beginning with verse 1. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when they met together, he, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit will, comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who was taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. And so we begin this morning with an introduction to this action-packed book. 
And our first question as, as way, by way of introduction is to ask the question, who wrote the book? Among scholars, there is almost universal agreement that the person who wrote the third of the four Gospels, we have four Gospels, the person who wrote the third of those Gospels, the third one, is the very same person who wrote the book of Acts. That would be Luke. And so in Luke's Gospel and in the book of Acts, those were originally a two-volume set. So if we can think about it kind of as a two-volume set, it makes sense or more sense to us. With the book of Acts being a sequel to Luke's first story about the life of Jesus. Now Luke was a doctor by trade and by profession. And eventually he became a missionary associate for the Apostle Paul, even accompanying Paul on several of his missionary journeys. And Luke was one who paid a special attention to detail. He was kind of a detail guy, which made him a very accurate and reliable historian, one who would write down a historical record of what happened. In fact, there are several things that I want you to notice about the way that Luke opens up the book of Acts in verse 1. He says, in my former book. In other words, in the first volume, in my gospel, he says, in the gospel of Luke, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and began to teach. Now, we don't know exactly who this Theophilus was. Um, He's kind of a, a mystery person to us, but we do know that Luke addressed both of his books to the very same man. And in the book of Luke... Uh, the Gospel of Luke, he refers to him as most excellent Theophilus, which probably made him a nobleman or government official of some sort, someone in high standing. And even though this book, the book of Acts, was addressed to one particular individual, the intent is that the book would uh, have a broad readership. In other words, that the audience would be very broad and and large. And I want you to also notice something else. The way that he opens the book, he says, I wrote all of this about, I, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do, he says. So in my former book and in that book, I wrote all that Jesus began to do. Now, what was Luke meaning when he said that? What was his intent? After all, the Gospel of Luke ends with Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension into heaven. So Jesus is now moved off the scene. And yet Luke says, I'm writing about all that he began to do. Not all that he did, all that he's finished doing, but all that he began to do. Clearly, Luke's intent is to demonstrate that Jesus' work was just beginning His redemptive, restorative work here on earth was just getting started. And that the church was now to be a continuation of the work of Jesus Christ. That Jesus has a much more to accomplish even after he ascended into heaven. And he is now accomplishing that work through believers, through people like you and me. That there was more miracles and more restoration and more life change that was to be experienced 
through the power of the Holy Spirit at work in believers. So what really is this book all about, the book of Acts? What is its content and really its structure? Well, Luke structures this book uh, around one important event. He kind of uses one event as a linchpin or as a hinge between the two volumes that he wrote. And that event was Jesus' ascension. Uh, He highlights this event in the very last chapter of his first book. And then he highlights the very same event in the very first chapter of his second book, the book of Acts. Notice in verse 2 of Acts, Acts 1 verse 2, until the day that Jesus was taken up into heaven, it says. Until that day, uh, Jesus you know, was at work, but he continues to work even after that day. And then in verses 9 through 11, a part of the section that we read, Luke goes on and gives us more details about the ascension. And so it's important to see how that uh, event sort of hinged or brings those two books together. But there's even a more important key verse, a key that unlocks the content, and the structure of the entire book. And that verse is verse 8, a verse that is very familiar to us. And you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so in that one single verse, we discover who we are called to be that we are called to be witnesses, messengers, living testimonies of Jesus Christ. And that verse tells us how we are to be witnesses, by and in and through the power of the Holy Spirit. And it tells us where we are to be witnesses, in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. In other words, Luke uses the concentric circles that model or that pattern where it starts on the inside and then gradually moves out. Starting first in Jerusalem, we are to be witnesses with those who are closest to us in our homes, in our schools, in our places of work. And then we are to branch out, to reach out and spread out and become witnesses to a larger region to Judea and Samaria, which means that we are to expand our witness, crossing cultural and socioeconomic boundary lines for the sake of the gospel. And finally, we are to reach out and extend that witness until to the ends of the earth as we pray for and as we support the missionary work around the world. Now, this pattern, this gospel movement, was act exactly is, is how Luke shaped his gospel. He started on the inside, and then he moved outward. It's the pattern that he used to shape, his gospel, uh, to shape the book of Luke, excuse me, the book of Acts. And so in Acts, we see this pattern emerging, where the church starts uh, very small just with a handful of believers in Jerusalem. And we see that 
the church getting started and taking root and taking shape in chapters 1 through 7. And then in chapters 8 through 12, the church expands into Judea and Samaria. And then in chapters 13 through uh, 28, through the end of the book, we see it reaching out into Asia and Africa and Europe as well. And so Paul, or excuse me, Luke uses this single verse as a pattern by which he structures his entire book. Finally, by way of instruction, we take a look at why this book was written. Why was it written? What was Luke's intent or his purpose uh, in this book? Well, Luke writes to show that God's plan of salvation, a plan that was prophesied in the Old Testament, came to fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And how that great plan continues to unfold through the work of the church, the growth and expansion of the church of Jesus Christ. So his first book shows us the fulfillment of God's plan of salvation in Jesus, and his second book shows us how that plan continues to unfold through the expansion of the church. Since Acts is really part of a two-set volume, it is helpful to recall what Luke wrote at the very beginning of the first volume. In Luke chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, we find these words. He says, Since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I decided to write an orderly account for you. So this is why I'm writing these two books. It's an orderly account. So that. Now, in the Greek, whenever you find that phrase, it's called a haughty clause. It's a purpose statement. It gives us the reason behind what was said first. And so why is, Paul, or why is Luke writing this book? So that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. In other words, Luke wants to assure us, assure his readers, concerning the absolute certainty and the assurance and truth of the Christian faith. He wants to assure us of that. And he wants to legitimize the church as the authentic people of God, the new Israel, if you will. And as a continuation of Christ's work here on earth. And so that's his purpose for writing this book. Secondly, then, we see Jesus' physical departure into heaven as described by Dr. Luke. Jesus' physical departure. Now, before Jesus exits this earth, we know that he hung around for a little while, right? We see some post-resurrection appearances. And Luke refers to this in verse 3. He says, After his suffering, he showed himself to these men, and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. In other words, during those 40 days that Jesus remained here on earth after the resurrection, Jesus appears to hundreds, not just dozens, but hundreds of different people on over a dozen different occasions, proof positive that indeed he was alive. And during this time, he also gave final words of instruction to his followers. 
But these 40 days following Jesus' resurrection were different than the 40 days prior to his resurrection. Because beforehand, he dwelt among, lived amongst his his followers, but not so afterwards. Instead, after his resurrection, he only made cameo appearances, if you will. He would show up for a few hours and then kind of disappear from their sight. He would go off. And so he would appear and then disappear. And so this was a transitional time uh, for, for Jesus and for his disciples as he prepares them for his ascension, weaning them away from their physical, from their dependence upon his physical presence. Right? Up until this time, they had been dependent on the fact that Jesus was with them physically. And he was weaning them away from that in anticipation of a greater dependence upon his spiritual presence that would be found in the person and work of the Holy Spirit. And so post-resurrection, there is this transitional time taking place. Finally, the time came for Jesus' ascension into heaven. And Luke records this event for us in verses 9 through 11. The sequence of events are not complicated. Jesus gathers his disciples, his his 11 of them at this point, because Judas is gone by now. He gathers the 11 around him on a hillside just outside of Jerusalem. He commissions them to be his witnesses. He promises them his Holy Spirit. And then he raises his hands to pronounce a blessing over them. And in the midst of this blessing we read that Jesus was taken up into heaven. In other words, his feet begin to leave the ground as he elevates up into the sky until finally the cloud covers them from his sight, covers him from their sight. They can't see him anymore. And as the disciples are are looking upward, straining to catch that last glimpse of their master, we read that two angels appear and promise his disciples that he will one day return to this earth in the very same way that they saw him leave. Ascension Day was essentially moving day for Jesus. It was the day that he changed his permanent place of residence from this earth as he returned to his home in heaven. And as such, Jesus' ascension is far more than simply what we would consider a a missile launch into outer space. It was more than that. Because there was a translation that was taking place from one dimension to another. It was a leaving of our time-space continuum so that he could enter into eternity, into heaven. But beyond that, what was the significance of the ascension? Why was that such a significant event? Well, for one thing, it assures us of the Father's approval of the Son's work. The fact that Jesus was graciously received into heaven points us to the fact that all of our sins have been done away with, forgiven, have been atoned for. 
The fact that Jesus' sacrifice on the cross was accepted by the Father as he was now received into heaven. So it points to us concerning the completion of that work of salvation. The ascension also points uh, to us concerning Jesus' royal identity, who he really was. See, he didn't just go up to heaven, but he ascended to the throne of God. He is now seated on the right hand of that throne. So it points to us concerning who Jesus truly is, that he is king. The events of Palm Sunday, remember when Jesus marched triumphantly or rode triumphantly into uh, Jerusalem as king? And there were all these royal symbols going on? Well, that event was only a prelude to Jesus' true and rightful entry into heaven as the King of kings and Lord of lords. But the ascension also anticipates the believer's triumphal entry into heaven someday. That there will be an entry point, a time when every believer will also enter into the presence of God as well. So in a very real sense, Jesus was a trailblazer. He blazed the trail from earth to heaven. The first one that really blazed that trail from earth to heaven so that all those who believe in him can now follow him into heaven someday. So his ascension is a a pledge. It's a sign and seal for us today that his believers, that his followers will one day ascend into glory as well. So this is the going up part of my sermon title. But let's move on to the going out part. Finally, then, we see the Holy Spirit's supernatural empowerment of the church. That's the going out part. The fact that the Spirit now comes to supernaturally empower believers to go out and continue Christ's work in this world. Now, the official title of Luke's second book is the Acts of the Apostles. We don't normally, we just call it Acts, right? It's simpler and easier. But the official title is the Acts of the Apostles. But maybe a more fitting title for the book would be the Acts of the Holy Spirit. Because almost none of the events that take place in this book could have happened without the uh, active power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus knew before he left this earth. He knew that while he was here on earth, if he remained here on earth in his physical body, he could only be at one place at one time. He was limited then in that sense in what he could do. But he knew that through the presence of the Holy Spirit, his spirit, he could now be present everywhere all at once simultaneously working in the hearts and lives of of believers around the world. And and so that's why Jesus knew that this transition was necessary. He knew that a new phase in redemptive history was required. And it would require him returning to heaven and sending the Spirit. And so that's why he made this promise to his followers in verse 5. He says, For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. 
the basic idea that is communicated throughout the book and throughout this first chapter is that the Spirit of God is going to be sent into this world. And that Spirit will indwell the hearts and lives of every believer and will empower them to be His witnesses wherever they go. Now the water baptism of John the Baptist, that was for the repentance of sins. But the spirit baptism is for the empowerment to live a new life in Christ. It's one thing to have our sins forgiven. It's a whole different thing to have the power of God living within us so that we can live in in a, a, a life that pleases God. That's why Jesus said to his followers, told them to stay in Jerusalem. Because he knew that the world would never be reached with the gospel of Jesus Christ unless the Holy Spirit filled them and anointed them and empowered them to do that work. Now in the Old Testament, the word for Spirit of God was the word ruach. That's the Hebrew word. In the New Testament, the Greek word is pneuma. But both words mean essentially the same thing. Wind, breath, or spirit. And so the Holy Spirit is the breath of God, the life of God. He energizes and activates. He takes something that is lifeless, breathes life back into it. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. So when God's Spirit begins to move in this world, and when we start to cooperate with the Holy Spirit, then amazing things start to happen. Barriers are broken down. New communities are formed. Adversaries are reconciled. Unity is established. Addictions are broken. People are healed and the church is revived. That's what happens when the Spirit is at work. Now when we give room in our hearts and when we give room in our fellowship for the work of the Holy Spirit, then something supernatural begins to happen. There is energy. There is growth. There is vitality. There is life transformation. It's unmistakable. It's like the wind. If it's a windy day, you can't see it, but you see the results. We can't see the Spirit, but we can definitely see the results when the Spirit is active and and working. Take the Spirit out of the equation, and things, you know, become rather drab. Things become tame, routine, and predictable. Now, sometimes we like it that way, if we're honest with ourselves. But that is not authentic Christianity, and that is certainly not the storyline of the book of Acts. Because there we see the Spirit unleashed. That's when things get interesting and exciting and messy. But that's the church of Jesus Christ today. For where we see God's kingdom advancing, we see the Spirit at work. When the kingdom of darkness is pushed back, the church then moves forward. That's what the book of Acts is all about. The kingdom of darkness being pushed back as the church moves forward 
with power, with passion, and with conviction. Friends, I don't know about you, but I, for one, want to be a part of God's great movement in this world. For where the Holy Spirit of God is at work, discouraged people cheer up. Sinful people fess up. Sour people sweeten up. Closed people open up. Conflicted people make up. Lukewarm people get fired up. But most importantly, the name of Jesus gets lifted up. And so I pray that this summer, in our study of the book of Acts, that it will inspire you to cooperate with the Holy Spirit. Let's pray that the Spirit will continue to move amongst us, that we might be powerful witnesses for Him. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the exciting story that You have revealed to us in the book of Acts. We're thankful for the early church and how You are at work changing lives and ultimately changing destinations in our world today. Lord, we know that you are still at work, still moving powerfully. And I pray, Lord, that we would be a part of what you are doing uh, even today. So, Lord, we surrender ourselves once again. We invite you uh, into our hearts, into our fellowship, uh, so that, Lord, we can be used by you in a powerful way to bring you glory and to advance your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.